previously on Hacker Valley Red. We just finished Hacker Valley Blue. And today we're switching gears and introducing the first ever season of Hacker Valley Red. I'm so excited for this season. It's going to be epic. We talk about what red actually can do for organizations and what the, the path of somebody in the red side looks like. What is the difference between a pen tester and a red team? Well, I've had an opportunity to break into some things and do analysis, but this season specifically really opened my eyes to some of the things that we're still exposed to as individuals that attackers can take advantage of. Is something actually unhackable? Could anything ever be unhackable? I think that's something that all of our listeners are going to learn from our guests when they listen to this season. This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. This season is sponsored by Risk IQ. Risk IQ assists organizations by continuously monitoring, extracting, and analyzing intelligence that they've been collecting for over 10 years. RiskIQ has created a comprehensive intelligence graph of the internet, and it's been used by over 100,000 analysts. RiskIQ's platform powers threat investigations and can help your organization map, monitor, and shrink your attack surface while proactively detecting threats in the wild. If you want to learn more, check them out at riskiq.com and thank them for also being our season sponsor. Welcome back, everyone. In this episode, we've brought in a true expert in social engineering. We've brought in Rachel Toback. She is the CEO of Social Proof Security. And in this episode, we get into the weeds of neuroscience and technology, spear phishing, and also training and education. We talked to Rachel about are humans the weakest link or the first line of defense? I can't wait to jump into this episode. So without further ado, let's get to it. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again here in the studio. And we have a very exciting guest that's a little overdue. And I'm so excited to record this episode. Today, our guest is Rachel Toback. She is the CEO of Social Proof Security and also chair of the board for Women in Security and Privacy, also known as WISP. Great pleasure to have you on the show and welcome, Rachel. Chris and Ron, I'm so excited to finally be on your show. It's uh, It's been a while since I've been wanting to do this. Yeah, originally we were going to have you hack Ron. Uh, <laughs> he was going to get completely owned. I, yes. I had every, every <laughs> amount of confidence in you to be able to do that. But unfortunately, we can't control everything that happens in the world. And 2020 has been a heck of a year. But for everyone out there that would like to know a little bit more about you and where you come from, would love to hear a little bit about your past and what you're doing today. 
Yes. So I am a human hacker, also called a social engineer. And I have a company, Social Proof Security. We do that human hacking training and also do the pen tests and, and red team work. So when I'm not doing that, I'm the chair of the board for the nonprofit Women in Security and Privacy. And I've been doing a lot of work with the Share the Mic and Cyber campaign that Camille and Lauren put together. So it's been quite an intense period of time. And I was so sad, Ron, that I couldn't hack you because <laughs> COVID-19 really just found its way to disrupt almost everything. I, the reason why I couldn't actually do it is because I was too busy volunteering my time with hospitals to be able to do anything else. And it was just a bummer because I, Ron, I think it would have been a good one. I was getting set up and I think it would have been I good. know it was. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was enabling 2FA on all my accounts. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's it's all right. Missed opportunity, but maybe one day we can find a time. You'll be on again, so I'm sure there will, there will be plenty of time to hack me. Yes. And I was watching some of your videos online, and you were talking about like neuroscience and that being your background. I'm sure that also gives you a huge edge when performing any type of human hacking. Yeah, I do think that neuroscience and behavioral psychology has helped me quite a bit. Now that I understand how humans operate, how they make decisions, how they're persuaded, it makes it much more simple for me to decide what my pretext is. So who I'm pretending to be when I'm hacking. A lot of times folks go in there and they're, they're trying to convince somebody to do something and maybe they're getting frustrated or it comes across in such a way that the folks uh, that they're trying to hack are just not easily persuaded. That's normal. That's a normal part of life. But I feel like the neuroscience and behavioral psychology background helps me avoid a lot of those situations. So I don't know if many people know this, but we actually met you almost five years ago. I took Ron into the social engineering CTF to meet Chris, Chris Hadnagy, and we sat in for some of the calls and we actually got to see you perform. And I remember just watching you and I was just like, oh my gosh, she is incredible. It's just crazy how good you are at social engineering. We'd love to hear a little bit about your journey through social engineering. What was the lead up like to that event? And then I know you've done it a, a few times. And then what has changed since that? Yes. So the first time I think that you saw me in the booth, that was my first time doing a vision call, I believe. I think that was, was that DEFCON 24? Is that when you saw me, Chris and Ron? I think so. Yeah, I think it was DEFCON 24. Yeah. So that time in the booth, that was my first ever vision call that you were witnessing. So I had never done it before. I had history. <laughs> yes. And so I ended up getting second place. Chris Silvers got first. He's amazing. It's so cool that you were able to see that call because I was so nervous. Like you could, I just, <laughs> I could hear my heartbeat in my ears. It was so loud. I had to like try and quiet it just so I could hear the person that I was calling and trying to attack. I don't get nervous like that anymore. I still get a little, a little nervous, a little tingly, but nothing like that. But yeah, so I, I used to work in neuroscience. I used to work in a rat lab, actually, learning about behavioral psychology and training rats uh, and understanding their behavior and finding ways to apply that to human psychology. It was a really, really wild journey because my husband is and has been in cybersecurity long before I was. And when I was still at work, not in cybersecurity, he called me one day during DEF CON, I think it was DEF CON 23. And he was like, Hey, I need you to come and fly to Vegas. And I was like, okay, sure. I, I don't really know if it's going to be for me, but I'll come if you want me to. And he was like, yeah, for sure. They're putting people in glass boots and they're hacking people live over the phone. And I was like, well, Ev, I don't know how to code. I don't think it's for me. You know, I, I don't think I could learn it that fast. And he was like, oh, there's no code. You just hack the person straight up, no code. And I was like, okay. So I flew out 
I ended up watching two people compete and both of them hit voicemails <laughs> like almost the entire time, which if you've been in SE Village at DEF CON, you know that happens, right? When you're hacking, it, it takes more than 20 minutes to hack somebody. Like when we're doing a red team or pen test, <laughs> we don't spend 20 minutes on that. We spend, you know, an entire week. So yeah, they hit voicemail after voicemail. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to be able to do this. I could try this. So I ended up reading every Christopher Hadnagy book ever written, every blog post, reading the SE framework on social-engineer.org, and really practicing calling my service providers, which is legal. You can do that. You're calling as yourself. You're just not giving enough information to authenticate as yourself. And spoofing my phone number and seeing would I be able to gain access to my account? Could I do account takeover? And lo and behold, yes, I could. So I ended up applying for the SE CTF and I ended up getting second place three years in a row. So very consistent. Never got a black badge, but three years in a row. <laughs> three years in a row, second place feels good enough for me. So I'm okay with it. Wow, that's that's pretty amazing, especially performing that well so quickly. Your first year, well, maybe your second year at that point, going to DEF CON and still getting second place. What kind of tools would someone need in their tool belt? Like, do you, do you need to know how to code now? Do you still not need that skill? What are the skills that you have in your tool belt that helps you get second place in that, that competition? Yeah, I still don't write code. So I still do not know how to code. So I would say you could definitely, like if you wanted to be an exploit developer, you'd probably want to learn that in, in addition to getting people to run and download those exploits. But no, I don't know how to code. Really the best thing that you can learn is how to be persuasive. And you can read Robert Cialdini's book, Influence, to understand Ooh. that. That's a really great book. And then the other thing that I feel like has really helped me is just knowing how to be an improviser. I used to perform improv comedy on Friday and Sunday nights before I had to unfortunately quit because I was spending all my time hacking, which it's okay because I still get to do improv in my hacking. But <laughs> yeah, I used to perform that and that skill set has helped me immeasurably. Like every single call you have to improvise because someone's going to challenge you on why you're calling them or what you're asking about and you need to be able to turn on a dime. A script isn't going to be able to help you through every single interaction that you have. And when you're emailing, threads can come pretty fast. And sometimes you need to act really quickly in social engineering to be able to get that attack completed. Wow. Improvisation. I think that probably is one of the most important skills that any red teamer or adversarial engineer could have because everything is not going to go according to plan. You can plan as much as you want when you actually get in that engagement things are a lot different. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the, the improv that you were doing. What specifically were you good at when you were doing improv? Sure. So there's a lot of different types of improv that you can do. You can do long form improv, which is kind of like an entire musical or movie. And basically the way that I improvised is we'd have a team, I had a troupe, and somebody in the audience, we'd have them shout out like the name of a movie that doesn't exist. So I'm going to actually do it with you right now, Chris and Ron. So yes. on the count of three, I want you to shout out the name of a movie that you think would be a good movie to watch, but it doesn't exist. Are you ready? One, two, three, go. <laughs> the boy that bowled for the future. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Ron. <laughs> the brown peacoat. Okay, perfect. Right. So these are movies that don't exist. And so then we'd start out a scene where we'd be coming out. Let's say I'm wearing a coat and let's say I have a bowling ball in my hand, but of course it's fake. I'm mimicking it. And I have a friend and I'm bowling and I say, ah, spare, you got to strike this so you win. So something like that, right? And now we start off an entire scene and that's going to be an entire one and a half hour set 
where scenes come in and out and you have to improvise and keep track of all your characters, do full character work, and at the same time, bring emotion and help people understand who these people are and what their backgrounds are when you've never thought of them in the past. You can't do any pre-work there. So that character development and that character remembering and work is really helpful for me in social engineering because it's easy for me to remember who I'm pretending to be and what my motivation is. Sometimes we, you know, when we're doing a red team or a pretext or something like that, the script feels a little off off to our tone. You know, our tone doesn't match or we're supposed to be scared, but we don't sound scared or we sound nervous, but we're supposed to be excited, you know, right. and you have to be able to dig deep and really build a character around how you're actually feeling and what's appropriate for that time. And so that's been so helpful for me in social engineering, because I'm able to remember who I am, figure out all the characters that I'm pretending to be, keep them all straight as I talk to many different people and attack. That's really interesting. I would love to do some improv. I have not put myself in that position yet. Mm. Chris has done some stand-up comedy. I'm, I'm going to get around to that, maybe even both. How far do you take it? What kind of characters have you spoofed as? Have you had to like do any modification to your voice? Or do you like to dress up to kind of get into the character a little bit more when you're maybe dialing someone over the phone? Oh, yeah. I spend a lot of time in my character work. So before I initiate a phone call or even before I even write an email as that person, I get into the mindset of them. Who are they? Where do they live? What types of words do they use? How do they sign their emails? Do they use V slash R? Do they say cheers, regards? I need to know all of those little details to understand what makes up that person. It's very multifaceted and it can't just be like one note. So before I get on a phone call, I actually look up who the person I'm pretending to be sounds like and get a sense for how do, they, how do they speak? What's their cadence? What's their tone? I might use a voice changer if I feel like it's appropriate to, to try and sound like them. And I have that software on my phone. And then from there, I practice over and over again in the mirror, listening to myself, pretending to be that person. And it takes a lot, a lot of time. I can't pretend to be everyone too. Sometimes there's pretexts that just aren't a match for me and I have to hire and bring on somebody else to do that. So where do you think the technology is going? Like there's a lot of research and projects out there for deep fakes. Is there something similar that social engineers use to further dupe or fool their their target? I, I would say that that's probably at least a year away. I hate to say more than a year because I feel like technology moves so quickly, right? I'd say six months and it would end up being three. But I would say right now, most social engineers that I know are not doing deep fake audio. They're also not doing deep fake video. They might be doing some research on those things, but they're not actively using them in their pen tests on a daily basis. I can imagine that if in about a year to two years, it's very possible that I'll be able to get, say, an audio sample for Ron and then become Ron and call a service provider by getting maybe a five to 10 minute audio sample, maybe a talk that Ron's given or something like that I can use. I don't see that happening this year. If it does, I'm very scared and concerned for our upcoming election. I know that deep fake technology still has some signatures that allow us to be able to tell that it's fake right now, which I do think is helpful. But I think over time, we're probably going to see that advance very quickly. Once it, once it gets good, it's going to become a thing real fast. I'd love to hear a time where you're in a job and you're talking to someone, but those alarm bells start to go off a little bit. How do you back them off the edge of kind of pulling the alarm and the game being over? <laughs> yes, that does happen, especially if I try and go too fast. So a big thing in social engineering is you have to be patient. 
You can't just try and get somebody to give you their password or try and gain access to a specific sensitive Google Doc all in one call. You have to do chaining attacks, which is basically like I call one person, I get the information I need to call another person, spoofing the the phone number that I got on the last call, and then so on and so forth. Sometimes if I try and go a little too fast, I might call somebody, make a request that I don't really have the level of access that I need to be able to make that request. And then they might say, hey, shoot me an email or use a second form of communication to chat with me. That's the easiest way to stop me, by the way. So if you ever have somebody on the phone or email and they just don't like, it's just they're requesting sensitive information that you don't feel like they need access to or money or transfers or something like that. Just say, hey, slack that to me, chime it to me, signal message me or call me or whatever, whatever you normally use. And they're not going to be able to do it, right? It's like, usually I only have access to one popped account. I don't have access to every single account. So I can't like slack them. And so when folks say like, yeah, sure, just slack that to me and I'll, I'll get right on that. I might say something like, oh, I would, but you know, X, Y, or Z happened. My machine broke down or whatever. I lost access and I'm trying to get access to sign in right now. And they might be like, oh, well, how about email then? And it's like, okay, well, I don't have access to that either. So I might say, actually, wait, so, so, so sorry, I'm getting a call right now. I need to hang up, but I'll, I'll give you a call back later. And they're like, oh yeah, no problem. So sometimes it feels like they're on to me and they're going to catch me. But then if I just stop it or break the call, I just call another person, hang up and, and call another person. And that ends up working in my favor. You just can't push one person too far past their comfort zone. And you can tell when they're uncomfortable. Yep. And I was uh, just about to, good thing we didn't do mine. Cause I was like, I don't know, I'm moving soon. I can't have any, any changes in my accounts <laughs> or anything like that. I'm glad we paused me hacking. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I actually just moved. But I also wanted to kind of hear about some of the work that you're following or some of the work that you think is most relevant to social engineers. Any recent news that you've been following that's really specific to social engineering? Yeah, I think the biggest one is the Twitter hack. That's been really wild. So we know now that the attack was in part social engineering based. And so we don't know the whole story, but we know that at least one person called a Twitter employee. And so it's called vishing, voice elicitation or voice phishing, you could say. And they were able to pretend to be IT support and get access to the credentials to log into an admin panel to change the email address on file, do a password reset flow, and then gain access to accounts. We know this happened to former President Barack Obama. This happened to Joe Biden, Elon Musk. And it was really fascinating because as it happened, I think it was July 15th, I started tweeting out like an hour or two after I saw these accounts do this really weird Bitcoin scam tweet. And I was like, ah, this looks like some sort of phishing or social engineering attack or human element attack where they're gaining access to an admin panel, resetting and and then taking over the accounts. And everybody was like, no, there's no way they did that. It was an it was an API attack or they were able to bypass MFA for Elon Musk or, you know, all these different thoughts and ideas. And I was like, yeah, I mean, it's possible, of course, that somebody was able to say fish out multi-factor codes for former President Barack Obama. It's possible, but it's unlikely. And it's super unlikely that it happened to all those high-profile accounts at once. And it's also so unlikely that the teams that manage Bill Gates and Joe Biden's account do not have like hardware MFA, right? I just don't imagine that they would, they would have, they would not have preventions to avoid some sort of SIM swapping attack. So I made that prediction and it ended up being true. It it ended up coming true that they did social engineering, that they were able to do that account takeover at the admin panel level that it was a voice call, that they pretended to be IT support. And people were like, 
were you behind the attack? How did you know? <laughs> How did you know all that? And I was, I got DM after DM that was like, "Hey, I'm with so and so. It seems like you know a lot about this about this attack on the day that it happened. Did you do the attack?" And I was like, "If I did the attack, I wouldn't be tweeting about it. I promise you, I would be very, very quiet. I'm not a rookie, right?" Um, but they were like, "How did you know that that was?" the method that was used once you found out about, once we found out that that was what happened. And I was like, well, I just guessed what was most likely, right? Occam's razor. I just said, what would I do? What's the easiest thing for me to do? And the easiest thing is to call them up, pretend to be IT support and gain access to creds like that, and then log in. Now, sometimes there's managed endpoints, right? And I can't log in on my own machine, which is a bummer. Didn't seem to be an issue in this specific scenario, but it's, it's pretty wild to see that's what happened. What would you say is the scariest aspect of this activity in your opinion? Okay, so I actually have a lot of thoughts on this. A lot of people are like, this is so, so scary. I can't believe this happened. And my thought process is, A, I totally can believe this happened. I've worked with so many organizations, large and small, that I know how tough it is to secure the human element of security and how so many people generally have admin access. It's least privilege is not always implemented at these orgs. And I don't think it's so scary because they blew this exploit, which is very, very useful, before the election. (laughs) So I'm actually very glad that it happened the way that it did. They were able to steal like $120,000 in Bitcoin, but not that big of a deal, right? I mean, it's it's some money, but they could have started like World War III. Right. You know, really crazy stuff could have happened. But what's awesome for me in my mind is now because this happened on such an international stage, everybody's so aware of the human element of security now. It really brought to the forefront, we need to secure the human element. We need to make sure that there's least privilege. We need to have all these other specific insider threat mitigations in place. And because of that, I think we're going to actually be more secure going forward. So A, I'm glad that it happened the way that it did. B, I'm glad that they blew their exploit (laughs) before the election and that they did it in like not that scary of a way. And C, I think it really does raise a profile for social engineering. And we know it's not a nation. Well, we don't know, but we know some of the people at least were not nation state actors. Some people were like, oh my gosh, they're tweeting out from here at Wilder's account. They're going after politicians. It must be a nation state actor. (laughs) And I'm thinking, did you see the tweets that here at Wilder's account was tweeting out? A woman posted that it was just basically Hurt Builders in a DM saying, hey, I think you're hot. Can I have your Snapchat account? Like, <laughs> mm. That does not sound like a nation state actor to me. That, that sounds a lot more like a 17-year-old, you know, just messing around and, and being weird. So it did turn out to be true that there were some minors involved. And I guess that makes sense if they're asking for Snapchat, right? So did they catch the individuals that were behind the tweets? They caught quite a few, yeah. So there were... Allegedly at this point, right? Allegedly, of course. Yeah. Yes, that's a good point. Gotta throw that out there. Thank you. I appreciate (laughs) that. They they do have a pretty robust profile for many of them, but it is alleged. There is a 17-year-old in Florida that they ended up catching. I won't say his name because I don't like doxing, but... You know, it's all over the DOG website. If you DOJ website, if you want to learn more, and then the Twitter folks who work there, they didn't they didn't confirm that two other individuals were involved. If you read the New York Times article, then you saw that they named a couple of handles, like from the OG list. The OG list is basically just people who are purchasing like one letter, two letter, or quote unquote cool usernames, and a couple of those folks were banned on Twitter. And so, while Twitter themselves didn't confirm that they were involved, they went ahead and ban those people from from the service. And so we can make some inferences and some projections from there. 
So humans, are they the, the weakest link or are they the first line of defense? What, what's your thoughts on that? <laughs> so my stance is they are the first line of defense. And the reason why I say this is because we always have technical tools. We should always have technical tools that can back us up, like you know, manage endpoints, IP restrictions, multi-factor authentication. The, the list can go on for hours. I'm not even going to try and list them all out. But I think humans are the first line of defense because you can't have a technical solution on every single element of a person's life. Like you might have managed endpoints on their laptop, but not on their phone. Or you might have multi-factor authentication on every every single account related to their work, but you don't have it on their Facebook or their Instagram because it's personal to them. And they're talking about personal details to their mom or best friend in DMs there, right? And so we always have to make sure that people are the first line of defense and they understand just how serious and responsible their role is. Sometimes I talk to folks in customer support and they're like, oh, you know, I'm just customer support. I don't really do a lot here. And I'm like, you don't do a lot here. You're the number one person who can protect the org. Like it's either you or finance that I'm going after first. So you have one Mm -hmm. of the very most important jobs at a company. And I hope companies start to treat their employees in line with that. In a prior episode, we talked about an unhackable system. Like what is in the realm of the possible? Could there ever be an unhackable person in your opinion? Oh, I don't think that's humanly possible. (laughs) I do not think, no, I can't imagine a scenario in which a person could be unhackable. In fact, every social engineer who does this for a living um, publicly talks about how they have been successfully fished. I mean, I'm writing fishes every day for a living and I've been successfully fished, right? You have the right pretext, the right timing, the right appeal to emotion, and it's going to work. That's why you need the technical tools to back you up. And humans need to know that they're the first line of defense. So they have to have that guard up. But it's no, it's not always going to be possible. So I'm sure after you get done your engagements with organizations, maybe individuals, there's always some key lessons that you leave behind. What are some things that you like to start with when it comes to training and education to protect against social engineers like yourself? Yes. One of the first things I do with an organization is I sit down with their client-facing folks and I have them walk through their protocols with me. So we sit down and I talk through Okay, so let's say I'm calling and I need to get an update to my password or my bank account or whatever it is that they have for me. And we walk through every flow, every edge case that could come up with customer support, sales, finance, hiring managers, recruiters. We sit down and we really take that time to walk through it. And then I help them close up the gaps where I'm able to exploit information that I can get from one call to another call and back and forth. So help closing those KBA, knowledge-based authentication loops, is one of the most powerful things I think that I can do to help a company. And from there, help them implement some sort of multi-factor authentication to confirm that a person who is calling or needs help with your organization is who they say they are, and that you have a second method of verification. And then from there, helping train and keep everyone on top of the latest attack vectors we're seeing so that they can be politely paranoid and use two methods of communication to confirm that everybody is who they say they are. So getting all the technical tools and processes and then the human elements secured. I'd love to hear something that people often get wrong about red teamers and red teaming in general that you would love to correct for everybody here today. I think sometimes people say like, oh, red teaming, you know, that's not, that's not real. It's in a vacuum, right? And I would say the only difference between what I do in a red teaming engagement and what a criminal does is the fact that you're paying me to do it. 
there's no other difference. It's just that we have it written down in, in a contract that I'm allowed to do it. I really don't use other methods than what the criminals are doing. That's why I was able to predict what the criminals themselves did in the Twitter hack, because it's what I do in my red team engagements. Dang, that's that's nice. I wonder how a social engineer like yourself would hold up when working in a security operations center or behind the support center. Have you found yourself in that type of work where you're, you know, working in the front line trying to stop people from engaging in malicious activity against users or information? Oh, yeah. I've worked embedded within a sock and knock before. It's stressful, man. I mean, like I really I give up so many of the folks in those roles so much credit because it, you know, they're up in the middle of the night dealing with things and being able to help and say, I think I can figure out where this person's coming in. I have a, I have an idea of what endpoint you can look at first. That's that's impactful to me. And it really feels fulfilling and meaningful. It's tough to watch. You know, I know as an attacker, just how sneaky I can be and how sneaky other attackers are. So yeah, I, I really do. I feel for those folks. And I think they have such an important job. When you look back at your career, all the things, the, the competitions, your business, all these things, what do you look back in and what, what's that feeling like? How do you feel like what, what are you most proud of and what are you looking forward to doing in the future? I think the thing that I'm most proud of is that I didn't wait till I was ready to start. That's such a big takeaway for me is that, you know, when I did my first social engineering capture the flag at DEF CON 24, I wasn't ready. You know, I, I had I had studied for a year. Yes, I had practiced a bit, but I didn't have formal training or education. I didn't have a degree in cybersecurity. There is no degree in social engineering. And I felt like kind of an imposter, right? Like I, I'm just this person who's coming in. I'm just going to try it out. And I ended up getting second place. And I was like, wow, I really, I should not keep waiting until I'm ready to get started. I should just do stuff when I want to, and then maybe I'll get ready later. And it ended up happening naturally and organically. And I ended up getting that second place three years in a row. And then people started saying, hey, can you come train my company? Can you do these pen test engagements with me? Can you speak at my org about what you do? And it just happened organically. And it was all because I didn't wait. Love that. And, you know, being in such a position to where you're skillfully, you know, winning challenges and influencing organizations, I'm, all, I'm sure you're also in a position where you're influencing all types of people, women, people of color. And I know that you're on the board of WISP. What got you into that? And, you know, what are some things that you're looking to influence in the state of security? Yes. So what's cool is that the folks from WISP actually came up to the stage my first year at DEF CON after they saw me compete and I ended up winning on that stage and they waited for me at the bottom of the stage and they said, hey, do you want to join women in security and privacy on the board? And I was like, on the board? Wow. <laughs> I, don't, I don't feel like I'm you know, good enough or cool enough or smart enough or any of those things to join the board. And they were like, no, you are. You should join. So I ended up joining and I, I came on as a creative director for WISP and helped with a lot of the engagement and came up with the scholarship program and all those things. And then a while down the line, they were like, hey, we think you should be the chair, not the creative director. And I was like, really? Are you sure? So I ended up getting voted into the chair, the, the top role on the board. And then I got it voted in again last year. So I'm, I'm still the chair of the board for the nonprofit Women in Security and Privacy. And it's been one of the biggest honors of my life, truthfully, to be able to do this work, provide scholarships, mentorship opportunities, learning and advancement for all folks. And the big thing we're working on right now is the Share the Mic in Cyber campaign. 
which Camille mm-hmm. and Lauren came up with. And they ended up asking me to be a partner within the Share the Mic and Cyber campaign. And from there, my partner Najla and I came up with a plan. We were like, let's raise the money to, to get the specific certs that you want. Like you should have these paid for by the end of the day, we're going to do it. So we ended up raising, I think it was like $2,500 for Najla. And then so many folks were in my DMs like, Hey, I saw you were raising money through Wisp for Share the Mic and Cyber. Can we donate? I'm like, uh, sure. <laughs> so we ended up raising close to like, I think it was $20,000 with individuals. And then Craig Newmark of Craig Newmark Philanthropies gave us a $25,000 grant. So now we're able to mm. cover every learning and advancement expense, including conferences, certifications, education, courses, and classes for Black practitioners and Share the Mic and Cyber. Every single one, we're able to cover it. It's like the coolest thing that I could be involved in that and just support it in any way that I could. Yeah, I I was a part of that Share the Mic event, and it, yeah. it was incredible. And I, I saw you actually reaching out on Twitter to everybody. You kind of was pushing everybody forward. And I thought it was incredible. And I, I honestly can't thank you enough for everything that you've done for that group, everything you've done for diversity and inclusion, and actually just pushing people forward from a, a technical perspective. But yeah, I just want to say thank you for doing that. Of course. I mean, it's literally the least I could do. <laughs> like, literally, it's just I have a position of power. How do I pass that power on? And this is the best way that I could think to do it is to put other people in the positions of power. So th- that has to feel good. What are you going to do next? I mean, how, how do you even top that? <laughs> I don't know how to top it. Things tend to happen organically. So I just roll with the punches. But I'm thinking that we'll probably continue to extend Share the Mic and Cyber. I know Camille and Lauren are talking about doing potentially another iteration of Share the Mic and Cyber. And so how amazing would it be to be able to cover any advancement expenses that come up then too, and just keep that that movement going. It's cool to be able to support, you know, WISP has the infrastructure, right? We have the nonprofit status and share the mic in cyber as a movement, but doesn't have that status. So being able to lend our infrastructure, our fundraising ability, and the ability for people to donate is, is one of the coolest things that we can offer in, in a very easy way. So with all those things going on, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, time is definitely... At a premium, being involved in such great work with the social engineering aspect and also great work in women in security and privacy. What kind of things are on your radar today? What kind of technologies, groups, areas of interest do you have on your radar? Yes. Right now, I'm turning my attention a lot to hospitals and making sure that they have what they need to prevent ransomware attacks and any other phishing going through successfully. So I am donating donating my time to do that. If you are working at a hospital or in any sort of healthcare and you hear this, please do reach out to me on Twitter at Rachel Toback in DMs and we'll set it up so that I can get a training for your org set up or whatever it is that you need. And continuing past kind of COVID-19, I'm turning my attention towards the election and just getting out the word about what the election's going to look like come November. I think a lot of people don't realize what Maggie McAlpine was saying, an expert in election security who started the Voting Village, along with Hari Hursty and Matt Blaze. She was tweeting about how folks don't realize that this election is going to take a really long time to reconcile. We're not going to know the winner on election night. Like, we, you know, we typically stay up, we wait for the balloons, the whole thing, right? This year is not going to be like other years. It's going to take potentially days, weeks, maybe even over a month to know who the winner is to calculate those, those absentee ballots that are coming in. So we need to go into that and know that going forward so that there's no surprises and there's no miscommunication where people are like, oh my gosh, has, has the election been undermined or hacked? No, we knew this going in, it was going to take this long. We need the folks to know that that is actually legitimate. 
I'd love to ask you about that. Do you think it would ever be possible for people to vote from their homes? There's so many things we can do from our homes now. Would it be possible to do an election from home? Maybe one day. That's what I'd say. I'd say this year, absolutely not. All election security folks definitely say that's not possible for this year. I know a lot of people are like, we could use a blockchain. Matt Blaze is like, absolutely not. (laughs) He's an election security expert. He's pretty much my hero. And so, no, it is not possible for this election. Maybe five, 10 years down the line, hopefully we get to a point where we have security in place where we could do something like that. But right now, no, we do not have that capability. So you talk a lot about the importance of election privacy and security. I saw a video online where you were hacking an election system, which was pretty crazy to me because it seemed like it was minimal work. Are there things in place to prevent that for this upcoming election? Well, unfortunately, that election machine that you saw me hacking in that video, it is, I believe, still used in 18 different states, according to the Voting Village report from last year from DEF CON. So unfortunately, a lot of those exploits are still out there in the wild, which is pretty frustrating to see. But we're hoping that we can do risk-limiting audits that enable us to be able to count what happened and check to make sure nothing was tampered with. That's really a good thing that you can do. So if you can use hand-marked paper ballots or some sort of paper backup while you're using those machines to build confidence in the election results and then have those paper ballots counted by machines, not just humans, and then have a risk-limiting audit to support the findings of that election, you can really put yourself in a better spot. And all of that I've learned from Matt Blaze. And I highly recommend reading Matt Blaze's papers. They are written at a level that most folks can understand them, even if you're not an election security expert, which I do not consider myself to be. I consider myself to be an election security student. And he has a really, really good paper out right now about the upcoming election and how we can rush absentee balloting to make it the strongest and, and, and most secure possible for November. Well, you may be a student, but you have a wealth of knowledge uh, from our perspective, Rachel. <laughs> Thank you so much for being a part of this show. We really appreciate it from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you. For folks that want to stay up to date with you and all the things that you have going on, what are some ways that people can do that? Sure. You can follow me on Twitter at Rachel Toback, R-A-C-H-E-L-T-O-B-A-C. I also have a MailChimp that I just created because after the Twitter hack and Twitter went down, I was like, I guess I should probably find a way to to reach out to people. (laughs) That's not just Twitter. So now if you would like to stay up to date on the trainings that I do or talks or anything like that, you can join my MailChimp as well. Awesome. We'll be sure to put everything in the show notes. And I guess we'll hack me next time. No worries on that. But really appreciate it. Great speaking as always, Rachel. And we'll see everybody next time. See you. Thanks for having me on. And Ron, I'll hack you later. (laughs) 